All right. Now we're going to draw our attention to the Word of God. Please pray with me. Father, as we open your Word today, Holy Spirit, come, I pray. Teach us, guide us, direct us, open our minds, open our hearts, that, God, we may be encouraged by your Word and live according to your will today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so quick question. Um, I don't normally pull the audience, but today that's just how we're going to start the message. So get your participation on, right? How many of you have ever been misunderstood? Raise your hand. All right, see, that was easy, wasn't it? Only question I'm going to ask you today to raise your hand, I promise. For those of you online, we all raised our hand Um, And so anyway, that's just how it goes. Today, we're going to actually talk about misunderstandings and the importance of our response to misunderstandings in our life. Paul, at the end of his third missionary journey, made his way to Jerusalem. And while he was initially greeted with open arms, It wasn't long before he encountered a big misunderstanding. And we're going to take time to reflect this morning on how Paul handled this misunderstanding and then bring some application to our own lives today. Misunderstandings are simply a part of life. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't like to be misunderstood. Being misunderstood can be a time where Personally, I can say it's lonely. It can be isolating, frustrating. There's times where when I'm misunderstood, I feel helpless and honestly hopeless. Maybe you can relate to that. If I don't pay attention to my own heart, I find that resentment and a bitter root can take place. And this is not what God wants for his children. This is not what God wants for me, and this is not what God wants for you. So we'll see how Paul handled this misunderstanding as he lived the gospel in life and brought about a real desire to bring reconciliation to relationships that were broken. I want to give you a little context before we read um, in Acts chapter 21. It was the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He was wanting to go to Jerusalem. He had his traveling buddies with him, his disciples. Last Sunday, we talked about how they stopped in Miletus, and Paul spent some time with the elders of the church in Ephesus, giving them his farewell message and and essentially I'll never see you again, so this is what is so important for you to know and how to live. They continued on their journey, and they met with more Christians along the way, and what happened in the early part of chapter 21 is essentially there were groups of believers that as Paul and his, uh, and his companions met with, they warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem because It's not going to go well. In fact, two of them 
even gave a prophetic word that the Spirit said, don't go because you will be shackled and chained and and you will face opposition. Yet Paul was determined to go. Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He was greeted by the elders in the church in Jerusalem. We're going to read about the event that Luke records for us in the middle of Acts chapter 21. And we're not going to spend time in the end of Acts 21, but I'm going to fill in a blank for you as to what happens. It didn't go as maybe Paul wanted. Though he worked to clear up the misunderstanding that he was in, at the end of the day, he was arrested. He was brought under the authorities' control. And essentially, he bopped in and out of being arrested even through his time now from Jerusalem to Rome. But Paul never lost sight of the gospel and its mission, nor should we. And so we pick up in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. I'll read through 26. You can follow along. When we arrived, this is in Jerusalem, The brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church. They were present. After greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things that God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. After hearing this, they praised God, and then they said, You know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have also believed, and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. They heard that that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? they will certainly hear that you have come. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in their purification ceremony, paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved. Then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. As for the Gentile believers... They should do what we already told them in a letter. They should abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of the strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. They had already started their purification ritual, so he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and the sacrifices would be offered for each of them. Living a life for Jesus, which is truly the life that the Apostle Paul was living. It doesn't always lead to a life of pleasantry. Like Paul, when we live for Jesus, we can expect rejection, false accusations, and at times, no matter how clear we are, misunderstanding. How we respond to criticism and accusations 
Sometimes the only thing that we can control in the midst of the misunderstandings in our life. I want you to not lose sight of that today because Paul's got something great to teach us. When life's not always fair and we're misunderstood, let's control what we can and leave the results up to God. In verse 17, as Paul and his companions arrived in Jerusalem, they actually brought with them. And one of the reasons that Paul was so eager to get to Jerusalem was he had taken up an offering from the Gentile churches throughout Asia Minor and, and, and Europe. And he was bringing this offering to the church in Jerusalem, one as a gift to them, but also as a sign of unity recognizing that both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are brother and sister in Christ, that they are one in Christ and they belong now to the same family. And before Luke, who writes the book of Acts, lets us in on this big misunderstanding that Paul has, he sets it up by first drawing our attention to the good work that God was doing. Notice how Paul talked about his missionary experiences with, with, with James and the other elders. This is what Paul says. When we arrived, they accepted us warmly. The next day we met with James and the elders of the church. Verse 19, after greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. And after hearing this, they praised God. Before we deal with the big misunderstanding, we're going to take a moment to pause and reflect on this God-centered celebration. Paul didn't show up in Jerusalem saying, oh, I need to tell you what I've been doing. I need to tell you about how successful I have been as a missionary. I need to tell you about the things that I'm teaching and the things that I'm doing and the success that I'm having. Paul didn't address the Jerusalem elders in this way. Paul, in a posture of humility, put God before himself and recognized that the success of his ministry wasn't dependent or determined by what he was doing. It was actually the work of God. He didn't say, I accomplished anything. What he says is, let's talk about the things that God has accomplished among the Gentiles. Yes, it was through Paul's ministry, but it was what God has done. See, Paul didn't brag. He simply gave glory to God. This is a good practice for all of us to do. It's important that we, we take time in life and reflect on the good things that God is doing, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us, especially the lives of the Christians around us and, and the church that we're a part of. 
so that we can thank God regularly and praise God and, and that the ministry of God gets all the glory because of what God's doing and not what we are doing. At times, I know it can be difficult for Christians to find joy in the success of other Christians. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who are finding success both in ministry and mission of God, but also just in life, let's celebrate that with each other. Not only was Paul telling of how God was doing great things, but then James and, and the elders were able to tell Paul about the thousands and thousands of Jews who are coming to faith in Christ. And I got to believe that in this interchange, they were like, man, this is awesome. Good for you and good for you. And it was this good for you moment, right? But let's take time to give thanks to God. Let's celebrate all that God is doing among us. Let's be winsome to our neighbors and, and let's celebrate with them the good things that's happening in their lives so that we don't find ourselves faced with a jealous heart. We don't find ourselves taking the place of God in what he has been doing. We don't find ourselves in a posture of being unthankful and ungrateful, but that we live with a grateful heart unto the Lord. This leads us really into this great big misunderstanding. Keep in mind, I mean, God was doing great things. But Paul, there's rumors about Paul and his ministry and his message. And before the elders and James actually address this, I think it's important to note that they celebrated before they addressed the hard thing. They believed Paul and they understood his message and that it was right. But to keep unity in the church and to, to help the gospel move forward, they devised a plan to help Paul succeed in Jerusalem. But before we look at the plan, let's look at what the issue was. Verse 20. Then they said, you know, dear brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and they all follow the law of Moses very seriously. But the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the laws of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children or follow the Jewish customs. What, what should we do? they will certainly know that you're here and this is going to be a problem. Paul came, remember, with an offering to express unity amongst the Jews and the Gentiles in the body of Christ. The good news was that thousands of Jews in Jerusalem had trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. In fact, it seems that the believing Jews had found a renewed joy in the law of Moses. They didn't no longer see the law as a means of salvation, but as a means of demonstrating their love for God and others within their unique Jewish culture and, and customs and religious context. 
The law became something that they could see through the lens of Christ as, as a way to express themselves in true worship to God, rather than rely on the law to justify them before God. Their decision to keep the law was, I think it was an authentic act of worship and devotion, not something that they were forcing on the Gentiles. Remember, they wanted to. When the Jews began to hear that Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, it forced Paul to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 15, there was that Jewish uh, Jerusalem council meeting. And at that meeting, they talked about well, if a Gentile gets saved, do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to become a Jew? What kind of rules and regulations do we need to set up in their life so that they can be like us? Paul's like, uh-uh, time out. We're saved by faith through grace alone and Christ alone. We can't, we can't make them be circumcised. We can't put all these rules and regulations and restrictions on them. We can't do that. So the Jerusalem council, they agreed. But at the end of the day, what they said in their letter is that the, the, at least for the sake of unity in the church and consideration of the Jews, all he asked was that the Gentiles abstain from eating meat offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of the strangled animals, and then from sexual, abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, if we do all that, we're going to get along just fine. So that was the good news. What's the bad news? The bad news was that these Jewish believers believed that Paul was teaching other Jews to abandon the law altogether and everything that came with it. So in order to maybe better understand what the problem was, let's identify first what it wasn't. James was not concerned about salvation. This wasn't a salvation matter. He and Paul agreed that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. That wasn't the issue. James wasn't concerned about what Paul was teaching the Gentiles. The Jerusalem council had agreed, and we just talked about the four things that Paul was to teach them as he shared the gospel with them. James wasn't concerned with Paul's view of the moral law either. Both James and Paul agreed that people who belong to the family of God should pursue holiness by walking according to God's standards. The Ten Commandments. How valuable they are to us even today. The Ten Commandments are not the way to eternal life. The Ten Commandments help us understand what a right relationship with God looks like and how we can live God's best for our life. The Ten Commandments essentially tell us what the standards are for a life of holy living. I shall have no other gods but the one true God in my life. If I have any other gods but the one true God, am I out of line with God's standard for my life? Yep, I sure am. I shouldn't covet anything that belongs to my neighbor. 
Well, if I do, am I out of line with God's standard for holiness? I sure am. The law tells us we shouldn't steal, we shouldn't lie, we shouldn't murder. Well, I mean, murder is the easy one, right? But what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you harbor anger in your heart towards somebody, guess what? You're now a murderer. He gets to the heart of the issue. The law is something, at least the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, is something that we will do not to gain God's favor, but because we have God's favor. Because we're in relationship with God, they are the expression of our lives as we follow God in holiness. The Jews were becoming to find this to be true of their own lives and their own reality, and and, and so the issue wasn't the moral law. The concern had to do with the Jewish cultural practices. The issue was, should Jewish Christians stop following certain cultural traditions? See, the Jews were suggesting that's what Paul was teaching Jews to do as he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. The problem is that's not true. It's just simply the word on the street. The word on the street was, hey, you know that Paul, when he goes into all those Gentile territories, you know what he's saying about us Jews and to the Jews? Not only should they abandon the law of Moses, they should abandon all the law entirely, and and, and they shouldn't do any of the rituals that we practice, even like circumcision. Can you believe it? wasn't true. In fact, what do we remember about Timothy, who was Paul's companion, as he was going about on, on mission and ministry? Remember, Timothy was half Gentile, half Jew, and he wasn't circumcised. What did Paul have him do? Get him circumcised. Why? so that they had an easy end to the Jewish synagogues, so that they could bring the gospel to the Jews. Paul never abandoned the Jewish customs. In fact, when he was with the Jews, he practiced them. But the way he practiced them and the way he taught to practice them was not as a means of salvation, but as an expression of Christ's fulfilling all the law and the prophets and everything else that goes into the ritual. So when we think of the Passover meal and you put Christ in the Passover meal, it comes to life because it's not about anticipating what is to come. It's recognizing what's already happened through Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And for a Jewish Christian, that's exciting. This was the issue. What Paul taught was that the gospel was an event in history where Jesus came to live a life that we couldn't live. He died a death that we deserved to die so that we could gain a right standing or a righteousness we could never gain on our own. At the heart of the gospel, what Paul's message was, not only his message, but the life that he lived, at the heart of it all was reconciliation. Reconciliation between people and God. Sinners who were separated because of our sin. God said, no, the gospel in my son Jesus is to, intended to reconcile you to me because of what he's done, not what you've done. 
So at the heart of the gospel is reconciliation between us and God. And at the heart of the gospel is reconciliation between us and others. So when we talk about living the gospel in life, one of the things that we must preach and we must live is a life of reconciliation. When we are sinning, we must confess that and get it right with God. So we're reconciled, not unto salvation, because once we're saved, we're saved. I want to just make that clear. But sin can hinder our walk with God. Sin can hinder our walk with each other. And, and, and God calls us to reconcile that hindrance so we can walk together in unity. Paul's focus was in clearing up the misunderstanding of his message. And this is where I'm going to suggest that the elders, along with James, gave Paul a gospel-driven plan. Verses 23 to 26. Here's what we want you to do. We have four men who have completed their vow. Go with them to the temple and join them in the purification ceremony paying for them to have their heads ritually shaved, then everyone will know that the rumors are false and that you yourself observe the Jewish laws. Luke reminds us, as for the Gentile believers, well, they should do what we've already told them to do. Abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood and the meat of strangled animals, and avoid all sexual immorality. So Paul went to the temple the next day with the other men. They already started the purification ritual. So he publicly announced the date when their vows would end and the sacrifices would be offered for each of them. <clears throat> the elders in Jerusalem believed Paul. And they wanted nothing more than to vindicate his message. To help the Jews in Jerusalem understand who are now Christians that Paul's message is consistent and it's right. That Paul's message is one that unifies the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian as one family in Christ. Paul's message was one that is intended on preserving the mission of the church so that more people could be reached with the gospel. So, so what about these four men who were completing their vow. This was a Nazarite vow, likely lasted up to 30 days. One of Israel's most important ancient customs. A special oath was set, <clears throat> was to set a Jew apart for normal life, often to be used by God to accomplish a very specific objective. And during this Nazarite vow, they were to abstain from three things. Fruit of the vine, grapes, wine, figs, things like that. Any contact with the dead. And they were also to not cut their hair during this time. But at the end of their vow, they were to go to the temple in Jerusalem, get a haircut, and offer their hair and animals as a sacrifice at the temple. So the plan was to have Paul meet them at the temple and tell them, I'm going to pay for your haircut. I'm going to help pay for the sacrifices of the animals that you need to make. Interesting enough, 
One commentator suggested that to pay for one haircut was a big deal. To pay for four would have made front page news. It was costly. When we ask the question, did did Paul compromise the gospel by doing this? Very smart people, theologians, they differ on this. Some suggest that he sinned by doing this. Others suggest it wasn't a sinful act at all. In fact, it was an act of humility and love. This is the side that I live on in terms of the argument, by the way. I actually think that what Paul did was an act of humility and love, and it was consistent with the gospel. His actions were consistent with how he determined to live the gospel without compromise. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Even though I am free with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. For when I am with the Gentiles, I do not follow the Jewish law. I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. I believe the reason Paul was willing to fulfill this plan was because at the heart of his life was the gospel. And the gospel motivated him and compelled him to reconcile what was broken. To clear up any of the misunderstanding. And I believe he understood he could only do his part. And that he wasn't the only contributor to this misunderstanding. For the sake of unity of the church and the mission of God, Paul was willing to do this. There's an important lesson here. Never compromise the gospel and never participate in sin when we are attempting to reach people for Jesus. Where is this even possible today? Well, If your motivation for hanging out with your buddies late night at the bar is because you want to bring them to Jesus, I want you to know something. It's very likely that you're not the influence in their life. It's more likely they're the influence in yours. Hear that by way of principle. Now apply it to any other part of your life that you're trying to justify your life by bringing people to Jesus when you know you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, but your excuse for doing what you're doing is because you're bringing people to Jesus. And and if that's your excuse, then ask this question, how many of them have you actually brought to Jesus? 
If you're winning people to Jesus doing that, keep winning people to Jesus, okay? But you hear what I'm saying and don't take this beyond where it's meant to be or go. It's a check in our life. What are we willing to do? What are we compromising as we help people get reconciled to God? How we respond to misunderstandings is really ours to decide. And this is how I want to wrap it up. I just want to focus for a few minutes, bringing some real life application. If you're in a misunderstanding right now with somebody, the only thing you might have control of is how you respond. Some choose to work themselves up into a frenzy. Is that you? In the midst of a misunderstanding, you're going to do everything you can to make it right. And therefore, by the end of the day, you look more guilty than you really are. There's another way people respond. They choose to turn inward, play the woe is me card, and then live bitterly the rest of their lives. This is not what God wants for you. This is not what God wants for me. The bitter root shackles and chains us to the misunderstanding. What God wants for you and what God wants for me is that we be reconciled. There's another response. It's an invitation to discuss the matter. Try to reconcile the issue and then get on with life. Is it that easy? It can be. Accept your helplessness in the situation. Don't see it as hopeless. Do your part, pray about it, and leave the results up to God. So is there like a one, two, three-step process we should do this in? Uh, probably not, but I'm going to give you one. The first thing we should do is pray. The second thing we would be benefiting by doing is instead of demanding that we be heard, take time to listen to the other. Select an appropriate time to deal with the misunderstanding. The time matters. Define the problem. I want you to notice how Paul and the elders actually implemented all of these. Define the problem. Define the areas of agreement and disagreement. Identify your contribution to the problem. That takes humility, by the way. Another step of love and humility is to then positively state your behavior in how you will move forward to bring resolve to the misunderstanding. Understand in all of this, you can only control your decisions, your choices, and your reaction or action in all of it. Finally, give it to the Lord in prayer and leave the results up to God. If you've done all that, you don't need to burden yourself day in and day out with trying to figure out how to fix the misunderstanding. Be uncompromising in living your life as the gospel would want you to. Be willing to reconcile with others. Be willing to do your part in misunderstandings so that 
the witness of your life isn't hindered because you're unwilling to do what it takes so that you can be a person whose message is clear, who can live the gospel in such a way that others will come to Christ because of who Christ is in you. When we live this life, we will live a life that reflects Christ in us. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians, and I'll end with this idea. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take interest in others too. You must have the same attitude Christ Jesus had. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that God, as we take a moment this morning to consider Paul's example to us of how we can benefit from bringing clarity to misunderstanding. Oh God, you've called us to do our part to reconcile relationships and leave the results up to you. Help us to be faithful in such. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand as we close in this song together.